I don't know what you call a, a peacock ranch, but that that's the latest acquisition is 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 peacocks. Imagine how much easier it is for that trans male patient to come to see me rather than having to go sit in the office of a gynecologist where the waiting room is geared towards women. I encourage providers and and actually nursing staff, lab staff, front desk folks. I encourage people to wear a rainbow flag. Wear something on your coat or on your your uniform. It, It can be very subtle. Life Support listeners, thanks for tuning in this week. We're lucky enough to have Dr. Neil Reagan, one of our best buds here at CHU. He does a ton of work in really important areas related to rural underserved populations, whether it's substance use disorder or LGBTQ plus care. Today, we get a chance to talk to him a little bit about his journey in uh, supporting and creating practices for rural LGBTQ plus patients. As a reminder, please follow us, like us, subscribe on whatever your listening platform is, and we hope that you enjoy the show. So we're so excited to have Dr. Reagan as our guest this week. And Dr. Reagan, can you start out with telling us your name, pronouns, the community, where you live, work, what you do when you're not working first, and then what you do when you are working? Okay. Uh, Neil Reagan, I am an MD. I have lived in Idaho for about 11 years. I work mostly in Pocatello. I do a little bit of work in Lava Hot Springs, which is where I live, and where Healthwest Community Health Center has a uh, a small clinic, and I do a little bit of work um, in, in Lava. Lava is a very tiny little village, just over, well, just under 500 people. That's about 40 miles east and south of Pocatello, and that's where I live, on a small farm slash ranch, depending on how many animals uh, we have and and what they happen to be doing at the moment. I don't know what you call a, a peacock ranch, but that that's the latest acquisition is, 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 is peacocks. Uh, and, and fortunately I, I live far enough away from most of the neighbors that I don't think that the noise is going to bother anybody. So in my spare time, I putter around the farm and ranch. My, my partner and I, we have, we've been building a barn and we have a lot of, of, of acreage to take care of. And, and it, I've got tons of, of gardening activities this spring and lots of flowers and shrubs and stuff. And, and uh, I have done my part this year for the bee population of Idaho because I was out. I've got uh, hollyhocks and uh, nasturtiums and, and petunias and mint that's blooming all over the place, all kinds of flowers. And the and they've just been swarming with bees for the past few months and uh, all different varieties. So this is bee paradise. When I am working, I have cut back my uh, clinical activities and my teaching activities somewhat. I, I work for Community Health Center, uh, uh, Healthwest Community Health Center, and spend much of my time at the uh, Idaho State University uh, Family Medicine Residency, where I am engaged in in teaching uh, re- medical residents, uh, pharmacy students and residents, sometimes psychology interns and so forth, all all different levels of of learners. And so yesterday would be a good example. I had a uh, an MAT clinic, uh, medication for opioid use disorder, a half day clinic had a a medical intern 
intern working with me, and we were able to see uh, a pretty good number of, of patients and give him a good idea of how to do this kind of work in the context of primary care. And, and the, the thing that I told him yesterday was the, the most important thing from my perspective that anybody can learn from working with me and, and working with the patient populations that I work with is to see these folks as, as real people uh, and to, uh, to, re- to recognize the, 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 the value, the validity of, their, of the stories that they tell and have a much better understanding of how people sometimes wind up where they are when that was never their intention to wind up there. So at any rate, lots of, lots of clinical stuff that I do, lots of educational stuff that I do. And uh, at some point, I will need to, I suppose, quit all of it. But right now, it's too much fun and I'm really enjoying it. Well, we really enjoy working with you. And I feel like we've worked together for four or five years now, and I never knew that you had your um, peacock paradise um, that that also takes some of your time. <laughs> that, that's awesome. Also, nice nice to know that uh, you have a little distance with the neighbors and screeching peacocks too. <laughs> well, you know what I really want to focus on today is your experience in this this part of your community or this part of the state around forming really program a clinic, a service line for LGBTQ plus patients within rural Southeast Idaho. So I think that when a lot of people think about rural family medicine, they're not necessarily thinking about services specifically targeted for LGBTQ plus patients. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey to specifically serving this community and what that really looks like for you? My journey has been informed by the fact that I am a huge believer in primary care practice, and I think that primary care providers can do anything. I think we can do it all. I think it's amazing what we can do when we recognize the needs in our communities and we rise up to meet those needs. And so I, I think part of my my own personal views come from a, having been around a while, and B, having been in the military. I was, I was in the, the Navy for, for close to 30 years and oftentimes worked in places that were quite isolated where I had to do it all, where I was accustomed to doing it all. And, and so since I left the Navy and, and the other places that I've worked, I've sort of carried that view with me. And, and I think that that's not necessarily unique to me. I think there are a lot of primary care practitioners out there, uh, physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, who are doing amazing work in their communities and they're meeting the needs of those communities. And it's, and they, we are doing things that are, that are sometimes not recognized as being part of primary care when in fact they are, you know, I've I've been thinking, in fact, I had a discussion the other day about a, a, a transmasculine patient who was needing a pap smear and imagine how much easier it is for that trans male patient to come to see me or somebody else who who he's already been seeing for primary care for cervical cytology, you know, cancer screening, rather than having to go sit in the office of a gynecologist where the waiting room is geared towards women, cisgender women. And so here's this guy, maybe, maybe has a beard, certainly uh, in, in most cases is going to look masculine sitting in the waiting room with a bunch of women and and it's it's just such a better 
it's not only better customer service to be able to provide those services at the primary care level in a primary care clinic, but we as primary care folks are much more likely to ensure that our patients are going to be getting the care that they need, you know, the, the, especially the, the preventative stuff, the mammograms and the pap smears and the, and the colonoscopies and all these kinds of things that, that, they, that they might not necessarily get. In fact, oftentimes don't. There's very good evidence supporting the, the fact that, that trans and, and non-binary people, and to some extent even gay people, are less likely to seek out medical care because of these various barriers. And some of the barriers are real in that folks are not always treated well when they go to the doctor, when they go to a clinic, when they call for an appointment. And sometimes it's more of the of the fear that the individual has as far as how they will be treated or how they will be perceived. So there's just lots of issues where if these folks are managed in primary care, then that's the better way to do it. Moreover, there are LGBTQ plus patients, people living in every community in the state of Idaho, large and small. And we don't see it. We, we don't recognize it if we don't look for it. And we don't see it. We don't recognize it if we don't, to some extent, send out some signaling that we are a safe place to go to. Uh, and if we will do that, we'll be able to keep these folks in our communities. We'll be able to keep their medic- medical care in the community. I, I don't think that anybody who's living in a tiny little town, say like Lava, like where I live, ought to have to drive to, you know, three hours to get care. That's that's not good for that individual. I mean, they have to take off work. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why that's just not a, a good plan. So we, those of us who do primary care in our communities can do this. There's, there's nothing... There is some training that's involved. I mean, there's some education that's involved, like anything else. You know, if, I mean, we we are expected to keep up with the latest information on how to treat heart failure and the latest information on diabetes. Which, by the way, diabetes is has become so complicated with all the medications that I say that I'll oftentimes compare transgender healthcare to diabetes, or I'll I'll compare. Uh, treating uh, chronic hepatitis C to diabetes, and and diabetes is is hands down more difficult than than these other things are, and yet we think of diabetes as being you know part and parcel part of primary care. So we need to change how we frame what primary care is. I I love that, and I think it really positions the role of family medicine and primary care in serving the whole community. And to your point, you you know, you talk about how providers can do this in almost single-handedly, right? I know that there were some services when you came to this part of Idaho, but you really grew a program. Can you can you maybe talk about that that journey of development and what it what it looked like when you first got Southeast Idaho and what it looks like now? Yeah. When I first came here, the Ryan White HIV program was already up and running and was already a, a robust program. And that's been a just a huge boon to to Southeast Idaho, to our to our community, to surrounding communities, to our educational uh, mandate as far as ISU's teaching uh, healthcare professions and so forth. And so that was already established. And, and I have have helped out in very small ways as far as as uh, stepping in and and covering some of the clinics and 
doing that kind of stuff. Also, as an advocate for making sure that that all of these folks who are living with HIV have a primary care physician uh, in the communities where they live and are not necessarily having to get their primary care at the Ryan White Clinic, because typically what the what that clinic likes to do is see patients once patients are stable, I see them every three or six months, and sometimes for really stable patients once a year. That is not sufficient for being able to tend to primary care needs that the overwhelming majority of these folks will have. And so everybody needs a medical home. Everybody needs a primary care doctor. The thing that that I started after I got here, and this literally was in just the first month or so of my arrival, I had my very first uh, transgender patient show up on my schedule. A young woman, a young woman seeking uh, hormone uh, therapy for gender transition. I had dabbled is probably not quite the right word. I'd done a little bit of this work before I came here, but but not a not a whole lot. And I looked around and I started asking around and learned that nobody else around really was doing it. And so I thought, well, I can do this. And uh, again, how hard can it be? And and in in this era, I mean, when when I first became a physician back, uh, you know, 40 odd years ago, getting information about how to treat something was really difficult. It took a lot of work and looking up medications and all this stuff was so much work. Now we've all got access to smartphones. We've all got access to computers. We've all got access to, you know, clinical practice guidelines. And it's not that it's easy nowadays because everything has become so much more complex, but we have access to all this amazing information. And so what I did with my my personal transgender journey was to go on a couple of websites, one out of UCSF, the Center for Trans Excellence, one out of Boston, the, the Fenway uh, folks, and just started reading. And, you know, all these medications that we use in all these gender affirming medications that we use are meds that, that everybody in primary care is familiar with, you know, estrogens and progestins and spironolactone and, and all these things. They're, we've been using these meds for, for other indications for many, many years. So these are not uh, uh, foreign uh, medications to us. And so it's simply a matter of, of looking at some protocols, seeing how other people are doing things. And, and as I'm comparing notes, I'm, I'm recognizing that how Fenway's doing it and how San Francisco's doing it and how Seattle's doing it. They're all, they're not exactly identical, but they're very, very close. And it gave me something that I could, could build from. So I said to this first patient, I'll be very happy to see you. I'll be happy to, you know, go on this journey with you. I thought being in Pocatello in Southeast Idaho, that I would probably over a couple of years would probably wind up with eight or 10 or 12 transgender patients. Well, so I was naive. And my naivety arose out of the fact that nobody else around here is really doing this work. And so as time marched on, I, you know, one became two and two became eight and eight became 50. And, and you know, before I knew it, I had about close to 200 patients, which is what I had at the point that I turned over most of my transgender patients to another physician in 
Health West and, and in the residency who is very interested in doing that kind of work. And I did that so that I could reduce my total workload and focus more on another population that I'm really passionate about from a primary care standpoint, which is folks with substance use disorder, also a vastly underserved population in this area. And since there was someone who was able to, to basically step in and pick right up where I left off with the, with the trans folks, then that was a, an easy transition. But that whole experience of getting the, the trans program up and running at our place and subsequently helping to get the medications for opioid use disorder, opioid use disorder and other substance use disorders, getting that kind of up and running too. It, it was really an eye-opening thing for me because it, it not only showed me what an enormous need there is in the community and what value a primary care physician, primary care providers can bring to a community, but I, I learned a lot about these folks that I would not have otherwise known. And it's been such a privilege to work, to work with, with both communities. And I wouldn't have had that eye-opening experience had I not started doing it. So I've been, been very, very proud to do it. Well, we're so thankful for the work that you've done and that you've really become a leader in this rural LGBTQ plus healthcare space. So I, I think that it's fantastic to hear your experience moving through that care space. But as somebody that also does medical education, what do you specifically say to whether it's trainees or colleagues that say, well, I, I don't really need to know this because I don't have those patients in my community or that's, that's not part of my patient population? There's a couple of different approaches to that. The The first thing that I say is, well, you do have those patients in your community. You, you just simply don't recognize it. And they are either not getting uh, the care that they need or they're going elsewhere to get it. And if you're interested in providing that care in your community, and I hope you are, then You've got to start somewhere. Uh, and if you if you put yourself in the shoes of a, say, a transgender person who's living in a very small community, if you put yourself in, in their shoes, they start, a lot of times nowadays, people start looking online and trying to figure out, okay, I've, let's see if I can find a, a, a trans-friendly or an LGBT-friendly provider in my area. And if your name doesn't pop up on a list, they don't know that that's where they can go. In a, in a safe place. And then the other thing that I think is a big issue in small communities is people have concerns about privacy. They have more fears probably than in larger places that their privacy will not be respected, that some of the things that they tell us in the uh, office or the exam room uh, may not be kept in confidence as they would wish that they were. And so that's also a bit off-putting. And so all of us need to maintain a professional attitude about how we like, you know, with our trans patients and our LGBT patients, like we do with anybody else, you know, what, what's basically what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And that's the way it ought to be in our exam rooms. I encourage providers and, and actually nursing staff, lab staff, front desk folks. I encourage people to wear a rainbow flag, wear something on your on your coat or on your your uniform. That's just a very it, it can be very subtle. But somebody who is who is trans or, or gay is going to pick up on that and is going to to recognize, oh, this 
must be an ally. The other thing that that will do is it will provide an opportunity for other people who maybe are not LGBTQ, but it'll provide an opportunity to have a discussion with people you work with and with with other patients. I mean, I've I've had people, I wear a a little rainbow label on my my name tag, and then also underneath my name tag, I have my pronouns. You know, he, him, his, and I and that has induced. A few people. I mean, most people know who I am already anyway here, and so that's not an issue. But but it, it has induced a few people to say, "Oh, I I see, you know, you you're wearing a rainbow flag, and or I see or a rainbow uh, uh, insignia, and I see." Uh, in fact, I had a fellow the other day who's not in the LGBT community said, "He said, I, I noticed your your name tag has pronouns on it. You know, why do you why do you do that? Why do you have that on there?" And it gave me an opportunity to explain to him that that I'm, you know, my doors are open for everybody and that people who look like me, not everyone who looks like me necessarily uses he, him pronouns. And so it, it just it initiated a discussion and he got it. So I was able to educate him. But if we do little things like that, we signal to the, the folks in our community that we are happy to see them. I, I was speaking with a young doctor a few years ago about this subject, and he expressed some reticence to, quote unquote, waving the rainbow flag in front of his clinic for fear that that would would uh, cause some blowback uh, against him in his community. And i not so naive as to think that that's silly, because I think that there is always the potential for that kind of thing. But Wearing a small emblem on one's coat or on one's shirt or on one's blouse uh, is different from, you know, waving a, a 40 foot, foot flag in front of the building. Not that I necessarily think there'd be anything wrong with that either, but it's all a matter of degrees. And it, moreover, I believe that as physicians, we are privileged in so many ways. And we have an obligation to sometimes step outside our own comfort zone in order to do the right thing for our patients and our communities. And I would never advocate that anybody necessarily uh, do anything that's, that's you know, grossly unsafe. But sometimes we have to do things that, well, as I said, that are outside our comfort zone in, in order to advocate for our patients. I mean, now's a perfect example of that with House Bill 71 coming up and and the inability for physicians, other prescribers in the state after January to, to prescribe gender-affirming medications to uh, anybody under the age of 18. The There's going to be more onus on us, I think, physicians, parents, teachers, to advocate for these uh, transgender adolescents. And if that means that I need to go to a local school and talk with the administrators or talk with teachers or, or at least volunteer to, to go and speak, then then I will do that. I mean, we, we have to be able to, to advocate for our patients. It's part of our jobs. I would imagine that particularly now in this environment where especially LGBTQ plus identities and services have become so politicized that that's a bigger and bigger role that providers are needing to take. And it 
it leads me to think, you know, while we talked a lot about the importance of these services, that's probably balanced by some fear and some apprehension, or or at least some worry every time we get around to the legislative session. Can you talk maybe about what your biggest fear for LGBTQ plus care is, say, for the next five years, and then what your biggest hope is for for the same? My biggest fear is that the political polarization that we're in right now in the country is going to get worse. I think eventually it's going to get better, but but I, I do worry that it's going to get worse. And I and the, the problem with a climate like that is that the, the people who are already vulnerable, people who are already marginalized and are already stigmatized are the ones who tend to be on the the receiving end of a lot of this uh, animus uh, in in this particular climate, in, in a climate like this. And that concerns me. They're, these folks uh, have enough struggles already, and they don't need the extra layers of, of being piled on, which again gets back to why physicians and educators and, and parents and and community leaders and so forth need to stand up and, and say, hey, I, this is not right. And I'm, I'm not going to put up with that. I'm not, not going to let you do that. I've got a lot of hopes. One is that there will be an effective HIV vaccine within the next five years. I think that would be a wonderful thing. Uh, I would love to see the CDC's current push to, you know, eliminate basically HIV by the end of the decade, uh, see inroads in that, that's going to require a lot of work. And again, at the primary care level, there, there's a lot of evidence that those of us uh, out in, in rural areas in particular are not, we're not doing the HIV screening that we need to be doing to identify people early. So there's just, there's more work to be done all across the board, but but it's exciting that uh, A, it, with regard to HIV, there are very effective treatments. And if we can get people identified early, get them into treatment, get them uh, virally suppressed, and they're no longer infectious. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons for, for getting people into treatment early. So that's exciting. This is kind of the flip side of what I said earlier about the things that I'm I'm most kind of bummed out about, which is the the current political climate. I think things are going to turn around. I I I feel uh, I'm an optimist at heart, and I and I think that the the ship it's like a battleship, and it's slowly going to start turning. And and this some of this stuff that's going on right now just seems to me to be so outrageous that it just can't it can't go on because there there are too many good people out there who who have critical thinking skills and they are kind. And so if you, if you are kind and you have good critical thinking skills, you can work through all this stuff and figure it out. So I remain optimistic. <laughs> I absolutely love that. And hopefully we can carry that through with our listeners is that we can move through the world with a little bit more optimism, even when things are a bit of a bummer. But I, I just want to thank you, Dr. Reagan, for the work that you do with us, the work that you do for the community, the work that you do for the honeybees. Um, it's, it's all amazing. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and hope we get to talk with you again soon. My pleasure, Rachel. Thank you. Well, that wraps up our conversation with Dr. Reagan. Thanks again to Dr. Reagan for his work in community and for his conversation with us today. Thank you all for listening. And as a reminder, please subscribe and follow us on whatever your listening platform is. And as always, please remember to give each other a little life support. Take care, everybody.